Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears to these wonderful, beautiful things in your word that you're going to teach us today, that you instruct us. Father, this is your ways. This is the way that you walk. This is the way all of your servants walk in heaven and on earth, because you do not change. We glorify and praise you as you open our eyes and as we delight in the feast of your word. In your son, Yushua's name, we give thanks. Amen. So welcome everyone online. Welcome everybody here. We're glad you're here to fellowship with us, to learn, to enjoy company, and to uh, enjoy fellowship with the Most High. So it's an awesome pleasure and, and to be a part of that with you. So we're going to learn a little bit about, um, a little bit from each of our portions. We're going to dig through this uh, defiant and unknowingly. We're going to look at uh, the Torah talks about three different types of bread. We're going to look at the three different types of bread. We're going to talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to reserve one of the items that we're going to talk about to the end because I don't want to give you a heads up of what it's going to be, but it's going to be towards the end. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the stuff that uh, First John talks about, uh, the, what's important for the people and the believers of the day. So, let's get started. So, verse 15 of chapter 15, it says, One Torah is for you. Both the stranger, meaning the ger, this is, remember, there's, we talked about this before, there's three types of strangers. There's the stranger that's just passing through, that's not staying. There's the stranger that comes in and stays for a while. Actually, there's four. The one passing through, the one that comes in and stays for a while. Then there's the stranger that comes in and stays for a long time, but does not want to become yoked to God's kingdom, does not want to keep the commands. And then you've got the guy that comes in and says, I want to stay and I want to keep the commands. I want to be part of the kingdom by doing everything that God says. That's this stranger. The stranger who has decided to take the yoke of the kingdom upon him that's who this stranger is. And so there's one Torah for him and the native. No separation. They are both equal. They both have the same responsibilities. This would fly in the face of Noahide laws because that's not what this says. It doesn't say that those who are not Israelite by blood are keeping a different set of commands. It's clearly telling you that there's one set of instructions for everybody, which makes sense. One God, one people, one set of rulings. And that's the way I like it. But it says this Torah is going to be how long throughout your generations? Forever? So as it is for you, it is for the stranger. One Torah, one right ruling. Very clear. Verse 38 says, and I'm jumping around a little bit for a reason. It says that we're supposed to put some tassels on the corners of our garments just until Yeshua comes. No, that's not what it says. It says throughout the generations, you should put them on him of blue purple thread. Notice how it doesn't say how to tie it or how it's to look. As a matter of fact, if it had been for the sages, if it had been for the nation of Israel, all of you, the way that you put your Ezekiel on is because of what they've brought and handed down to us, the way that they've, unless you've completely done it a different way, but most everybody does it that way. It doesn't say how to do it. I mean, obviously, as long as you've got the thread of blue, you can do it whatever you want, but there's some things that have been handed down that are not bad. It's not something that's to be regarded as pagan. I mean, this is a tradition that really represents something godly of how it was tied even in Yeshua's day. But here's the key thing, verse 39. And they shall be 
to everybody out there to see. No, to you. It shall be to you. For you to look at. This was the problem in Yeshua's day. Remember he said, some of you guys have got these real long ones and you're wanting, in other words, they're wanting everyone else to see it. It's, they're doing it for everyone else, not just for themselves. And so God says, those zitziot, tassels, are for you so that you would remember to keep the commandments. And I remember a long time ago, someone told me, well, I don't need to be remembered to obey God. I, I already know to do that. We don't need reminders. I said, really? I said, well, God needs reminders. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. He put the rainbow in the sky. He says as a reminder not to destroy the earth by water again. So if God needs reminders, which I always say those multicolored uh, rainbow is his zitziot, <laughs> Because he's reminding himself to keep his command, right? Not to destroy the earth. These are for a reminder for us to keep the command. It's important because we need reminders. This is why God sent a wife to man, so that he had a reminder. We need reminders. Reminders are good. Because how many of you ladies know that men forget? We really don't, do we? My brother-in-law sent me this picture, and it's a refrigerator. The door is open, and there's two items in the refrigerator, a bottle of ketchup and a bottle of mustard. And the captain says, where's the ketchup? Can't find a thing. Even if it's right in front of you, right? But we need reminders. God wants us to be reminded of things. And you know what? He wants to be reminded. He wants us to say, you said in your word. To remind. Reminders are a good thing. So the zitziot, the tassels, are a wonderful thing. By the way, people would say, well, you know, Yeshua didn't do that. Well, let me ask you, it doesn't say, well, let's just say, it says that the woman that had the issue of blood reached out and touched the hem of his garment. You would have to do your research to find out that the word hem is this place where the zitzit is tied. And She's reaching to touch that because it's the embodiment of all of God's instructions are in it. It's the righteousness. It's the holiness that are embodied inside the, the zitziot. So if he hadn't have been wearing those tassels and they were looking for a reason to disqualify him as the Messiah, which the Torah says the Messiah will come and proclaim the Torah. This would be a real easy thing to say, why well, you can't because you're not wearing the, the tassel. So it's proof text that he wore them because it would have been an easy way to disqualify him as the Redeemer. So tassels are a good thing. And my opinion is for man and woman, not just man. Now, Mark, how, how can you say that? Because it says right in there, it says right in there, tell the sons of Israel, they are to put them, they're right here, speak to the children of Israel, sons of Israel, they should put on tassels. Well, it says that about the manna too. Tell the sons of Israel, they shall eat manna. I guess only the men ate manna. None of the women ate it. Women somehow made it on nothing for 40 years. So that phrase, sons of Israel, applied to both men and women. It was a general phrase. Because Shouldn't the women be reminded too? Yes. We're not the only ones that forget. Verse 22. And when you sin by mistake, the Targum says, but if you err. Now I like the word err because the Hebrew word in this verse for mistake is shaga, and it could be pronouncing it wrong, so bear with me. It means to go astray, error. So the Targum has the word error. And if you do not do all these commandments that Yahweh has spoken with Moshe, you make a mistake, you make an error. We're going to get into this a little bit because there's actually three different words here for unwittingly. How many of you have unknowingly in your Bible? Unknowingly, unwittingly? No? 
Ezekiel 34, 6 says, They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This word, our Hebrew word here for mistake, this shagah, is a root, is also used to describe how a sheep got lost. And Yeshua said, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the ones who have erred, who have wandered away from my commands, who have gone astray. The Scriptures pinpoints at least three causes for such wandering. The first is wine and strong drink. The second is the seductive strange woman versus the love of one's wife, which ought to captivate one. And the third is the inability to reject evil instruction. Now, I would say to you that this idea of uh, being seduced by a strange woman would fall into this harlotry that Israel did, which was falling after false doctrine, false gods, false worship. Same kind of thing. Which would also be in line with inability to discern something that's evil, evil instruction. You see, when the adversary tells Eve, nah, that's not what God said, she's not able to discern that evil instruction was not good, but the instruction that God gave her was the good stuff. So these are the three causes for the wondering. Only Saul in the, in the Tanakh admits culpability at this point, 1 Samuel 26, 21. So here's the three different words. We just saw in verse 22, it's shagah. In verse 24, it says, then it shall be if it is done by mistake, but this one is shagaga. A little different twist. Without the knowledge of the congregation. This verb is used four times. And it's in verses dealing with the sin of ignorance or inadvertence. The remaining two are Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And Job 12, the deceived and the deceiver are his. The word deceived is from the root shagag. And deceiver is from the root shaga. So we've got three different words here. We're going to see another one here, I think, in a minute. If you have questions or comments, raise your hand. The microphone will make its way to you. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel. Well, it sounds like the Day of Atonement, doesn't it? The priest will make atonement for the congregation. Remember, a Day of Atonement is a congregational thing, right? Mike. Oh, I had a question about that in verse 24. If it is done by mistake without the knowledge of the congregation, does that mean somebody sin in the congregation didn't know it or the whole congregation committed a sin yeah and, I, and because we're gonna because it ends up talking about in verse 25 atonement for the whole congregation it could be very well talking about something that is some of the sins that it represents the whole body something that is infects the whole body which there are ones in there that we've read i don't have them here in front of me but yeah so good point so if they, he's going to make atonement for the congregation, it should be forgiven them, for it was by mistake, and they shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire. Here's one that may fall into Mike's example. Jonah goes to just the king of Nineveh. Nope. He's sent to the people of Nineveh. This is a whole congregational thing, to make them known of their sin, their mistake, their error, so that they would repent and make amends for it. So it was a congregational thing. It was a citywide thing over all the people. And God made atonement for them, right? So that would play into that scenario. Verse 29. One law for him who does anything unintentionally. Now this word is a little different than the other two we've looked at. This is shagaga. And it again means error and unintentional. But just, it's just a different Hebrew word. For him who is native among the sons of Israel and the alien who sojourns among them. People would say, but this unintentionally, how can you sin unintentionally? How can you sin inadvertently? 
I'm going to point out to you that this unintentional and inadvertently is contrasted. There's two things being talked about here. It's contrasted to the one that's high-handed. We'll get into the high-hander in a minute. So there are times when people do something without knowing it. How many of you offended somebody and you didn't know you did it and they pointed it out to you? But there are also places where you did sin and you did know it and it still falls in this category. Let me give you an example. The Scripture says that all of the sacrifices that are given, all of the Levitical sacrifices in the book of Leviticus that are given for sin, for error, are for only unintentional sin. This word. No sacrifices for the high hand. None. Zero. Only for the unintentional sin. Verse 30. Hopefully this will make sense as we continue to move on. But the being who does something, the Hebrew word is biyad ramah, Ramah comes from the root word rum, which these two words together define this word defiantly. You have to see both of them to capture this word defiantly. Whoever does something defiantly, whether he is native or stranger, he reviles Yahuwah, and that being shall be cut off from among his people. So let's look at the first word, yad, hand, power, strength. In other words, this person's like, but whose strength, whose power? Their own. The primary meaning of this noun is the terminal part of the arm used to perform functions of man's will. By my will, I'll get it done. Not your will. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I don't need you to tell me what's right and wrong. I don't like being told. I'm going to make my own rule. I mean, after all, the nation of Israel, over and over and over again, the example is that they've wandered from the instructions. They no longer wanted to do what he said. And they said, we'll do what this group or this entity says. This God says we should do this. We'll do it. Lots of examples, but I'm not going to say them. I don't want to be offensive to anyone. But, uh, so the phrase, into or under someone's hand, conveys authority involving responsibility, care, and dominion over someone or something. One may be under the custody of this authority. How many of you are glad that you're under the custody of his authority? His hand is on you. It's a scary thing to be outside of the will or the hand of the living God. We place our hearts and spirits into his care, sovereignty, and judgment. Moreover, this idiom portrays victory over someone. Imagine this. The person high hand says, I've got victory, I've got victory over your rule over my life. I'm in charge now. I've been set free from that. I've been set free from the laws. Those laws no longer have reign and, and dominion over me. I'm free. The hand symbolized power and strength. Also, obstinate rebellion is described by the phrase high hand. Contrarily, the same expression conveyed God's mighty deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Shaking the hand symbolizes God's warning of destruction and judgment. Contempt is likewise visualized by this symbol. So this word is defiantly, literally, with an upraised hand, possibly referring to a clenched fist or a similar gesture denoting public protest. This is similar to the Targum that says, one who acts arrogantly. Arrogant. How dare you try to control my life? I'm the boss. I have authority. I'll decide what I'm going to do. Sounds like a child, doesn't it? But yet, grown people do this. The other word, ram or rum, the root, 
It occurs around 200 times with the primary meaning to lift up or exalt. I'm exalting myself. I'm exalted. In both a literal and metaphorical sense, though the latter sense predominates. The literal meaning exalt with the idea of raising high or lifting high is found in Genesis 7.17 in regard to the ark. Also in relation to Moses, rod or hand. It refers also to the raising of the wave offering. It mentions Elisha lifting up Elijah's mantle. In Isaiah, it refers to the lifting of one's voice. Exaltation is commonly linked to the person of God. But the idea of high hand is who's being exalted. It's denouncing that being exalted and exalting myself. Especially in the context of worship. A number of texts refer to the practice of exalting or praising. In a related context, Isaiah speaks of the exalting of the servant of Yahuwah. It also mentions that made, it's also made of God's will exalting his chosen servants. Samuel 2 says it refers to the exaltation of the horns of God's anointed. And this is a messianic prophecy linked to the conquest of the enemies of Yahuwah, both in a spiritual as well as physical sense. So how would these words apply to gathering sticks? It's right here together. What's the connection? Because we talked, you know, we, we, we learned about how uh, Aaron's two sons, they go in and they do a mixed fire. And as soon as it's over, it talks about not being drunk going in to do the service. Must have been a connection. They must have been out of their mind on something that they had drunk and gone in and made a mistake. So God's putting these things in connection here because certainly the guy going out there and just picking up a couple of twigs, is that worthy of death? And we've picked up things on Shabbat. None of us have been smoked. So something about the picking up of sticks and something to do with this defiant and high-handedness. There's some connections here. Let the wheels turn a little bit as we continue to examine. Second Samuel refers to God exalting David above his enemies. Other texts refers to God exalting his people. And a variety of passages speak of the exalting of various human emotions, qualities, actions, both good and bad. For example, the manifestation or exalting of pride is condemned. The lifting up of one's hand in rebellion is mentioned in 1 Kings, where Jeroboam is set to take over the throne from King Solomon. Psalm 12 deplores the exalting of evil among humankind. But in a positive vein, Nehemiah 9.6 mentions the lifting of one's face in the context of prayer and communion with Elohim. Finally, in Balaam's oracle of blessing, there is a metaphorical exaltation of the kingdom of Israel. Linked to this is the reference to the exaltation of Israel's enemies over his people as part of God's punishment against Israel in Lamentation 2.17. So God can bring and he can exalt something over his people because they've done wrong. Or he could exalt the person because they've been doing right. Verse 31 says, For he has tread upon the word of the Lord of Yahweh, and as this is the Targum, you might want to write this down. He has tread upon the word of Yahweh and has changed his command. I like that. Doesn't say that in any of the English. The Targum says he has changed, altered the command. Is anyone doing that today? Has any of that happened over the last 2,000 years? Did it happen before Yeshua? Yes. Hey, Rabbi, wouldn't a, wouldn't a connection be life and death? Yes. So, we have the command to not add to or to subtract from. This would go along with changing, altering it, changing it. So now we have a man picking up sticks, connected with changing God's commands, and high-handed, lifted up. I would like to present to you that it's possible that this man had been doing all of this together that warranted his death sentence. 
have a hand up over here. Keep it up. <laughs> it said it was strange fire, and strange fiber, fire I've always thought of was um, an offering. It's making an offering unto a false god, and so with the, like you're saying, with the authority being under the authority of somebody else, to me, it seems like they were making an offering to somebody other than the Lord in the first place. Or, yeah, and that's very possible. It could also be that they used coals that were not from the offering, but used coals somewhere else. So obviously something that's strange about the fire that was not the way it was ordained, the way it was instructed to do. And since it talks about being, not being drunken, it's very possible these guys just, out of not being in their right mind, made a mistake, a critical mistake. And so I'm wondering here, if this gentleman that's going out and picking up sticks, and Ralphie did a really good study years ago about this whole deal. Did this guy, first of all, if you're going out, could it be that the things that he was picking up was to build an altar to a false god? Because idolatry is an instant death sentence. So this word, changing the commandments, is the Hebrew word ashni, and it's to be different, to change. You know what? When mankind changes God's words, they're no longer, remember, we, we, we get to fellowship. When we partake of that wine and that bread, His character comes into us, and we're to become like Him, but if I change it to something else, I'm now different than him. I'm no longer like him. I'm no longer in fellowship. I've changed things, and now I'm different. When David took Bathsheba and killed her husband, he became different. He had to make things right real quick. We have a hand here and then over here. So there's a difference between changing or adding to or subtracting from than someone who acknowledges, let's use the term Shabbat, a family that doesn't keep Shabbat the way we do or walk it out the way we do, they haven't changed the command, they just walk it out differently. Some families guard it in a way that has a broader fence around it. Some families have a different kind of fence around it, they still keep an honor that they don't work on the Shabbat, what that looks like for them, versus somebody who completely disregards the Shabbat that it doesn't apply to me yep. at all. Yep. So some have a 10-foot fence, some have a 4-foot fence. Gotcha. Okay. I'm glad you said idolatry because as you were going through this, the thing that it reminded me of was narcissists and why that is such a <sighs> judge person before Yah is because they are literally trying to make other people in their own image. And that is idolatry. And that is changing his commandments. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Amen. And up here, up front. And Ralphie, if you want to add to any of that, that from your study, please do. Now, the church this day says that they don't have to keep Shabbat because they do it on Sunday. That, that would be, to me, that would be changing the commandments because Shabbat is on a Saturday, it's not a Sunday. scary place to be in, and I'm glad I'm not the judge. Amen. <laughs> Very scary place. This, this gentleman here, I mean, they had, to, they had to ask. They weren't sure what to do. And... Boy, it was a severe judgment. I mean, this wasn't just, you know, send him outside the camp for a couple of days. This was uh, a life and death decision, yes. I wonder if these uh, people talked to the guy and said, hey, look, uh, we shouldn't be doing this on Shabbat, and he just totally, you know, told them. High hand, yeah, saying, yeah, I don't care what you yeah, tell me. So I'm, I'm wondering if all three of these are apply, applying to this. We've got a high-handed rebellion that I'm going to do it no, no matter what, 
and some form of idolatry connected with the picking up of sticks. Um, one of the things talked about that he, this person could have been doing this another day. It could have been something to do with the tabernacle. The sticks had to be something to do with keeping the fire going. There's all kinds of things, but because of what's being dealt with, it makes me feel like maybe there were several things involved here at the same time, and God's using this situation to instruct his people, look, don't do this and this. This guy just got zapped for it. Don't do that. I mean, how many times did we, when our kids do something, go, hey, they touch the thing, don't touch the burner. We don't do it way before the burner. We wait till the time that they touch the burner. Listen, listen, you're not supposed to touch the burner. Don't come near the fire. I remember at Sukkot, kids were being instructed, you've got the fire going, scoot back, don't get near. They weren't doing it four hours earlier, telling their kids not to go there. Wait until the fire was there and the kids were coming up close to the fire. My point is, he's using this event that happened with this gentleman to instruct his people. Verse 32. While the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering the sticks on the Shabbat day. They brought in Moshe into the congregation and they put him under a guard, under the ban, because they had not been declared what should be done. And they said to Moshe, what should we do to him? And he says, put him to death. Stone him with stones. So I want to remind you, the story is told with just a few brushstrokes, as it were. For example, the man is brought to Moses, but nothing is said about the accusation that presumably was made against him. However, its plot line and language make it a parallel to the story of the mixed seed blasphemer in Leviticus 24, 10-14. Could there be a tie between high hand and changing commands, maybe even idolatry, or could there be a connection to the mixed seed blasphemer? I don't know. But it's whatever it was, it was very grievous. It warranted putting the person to death. A very big no-no. Something we should also be guarding the Shabbat. So gathering, I did this really for, for Ralphie because I, uh, I wanted to show the three different definitions of gathering the sticks. The first one is Hebrew from the Hebrew text. The second one is from the Greek. And the last one is from the Aramaic. And so you see that really they all are talking about the same thing. I thought there would be a little bit something different that would be extrapolated out of it, but they're really all talking about the same thing. Uh, it's something collected, gathered, removed from the field. Um, the interesting thing is, in the Hebrew it says gathering stubble, but the other ones don't really have the word stick in it. It's just gathering. That's why I'm wondering, was it really stick or was it really something else that he was gathering? I don't know. So we're going to take a quick look at the prophets. If you, want to, if you have your Bible open, turn to Jeremiah 17. This is connecting our honoring the Shabbat with our prophet portion. It says, Thus said Yahweh to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the sovereigns of Yehuda come in, and by which they go out, and all the gates of Yushalayim. You should say to them, Hear the word, hear the memra of Yahuwah, you sovereigns of Yehuda." and all Yehuda and all the inhabitants of Yushalayim who enter by these gates. Now what's going on at the gate? What happens at the gates? This is where, where final decision is made. This is where law is determined. This is where court is held at the gate. This is like coming to the courthouse. The gate is where the, you, you, you present, you, you, you buy something. You know, everything happens that's final and legal is happening at the gate. Yes. Hey, Rabbi, what if, you, what if you took that technicality of picking up a sticks or whatever and said, well, those who threw the stones are working. And so they would be the next and so, then so next. They, they the picked next. up stones. What's the difference in picking up stone and picking up a, a stick? Well, technically, if you just kept doing that, the whole camp would be dead. <laughs> verse, verse 21. Thus said Yahuwah, guard yourselves and bear no burden on the Shabbat day, nor bring it in by the gates of Yerushalayim, nor take a burden out of your houses on the Shabbat. Do not any work, and you shall set apart the Shabbat day as I commanded your fathers. 
Were the sticks a burden that he was carrying? I don't know. The word burden is the word Messiah, and it, it, the word it means in about half of the context in which the term is found, it refers literally to the burden or load carried by donkeys and other beasts. There are also several references to Massah designating the particular responsibilities of certain Levite clans for carrying the furniture of the tabernacle. And that kind of points to what Ralphie had brought up back, I think, in his study about it, what the man was carrying, a load or a burden that he was carrying that he shouldn't have been carrying. Special mention is also made of the general prohibition of carrying goods on the Shabbat. Hmm. Interesting. Observance according to Mosaic law, the Sabbath was observed by cessation from labor. The idea of work is not more precisely defined in the Torah, except that the kindling of fire for cooking is expressly forbidden, and the gathering of wood is treated as a transgression. Wherefore, it is evident that work, in its widest sense, was to cease. Accordingly, it was quite in keeping with the law when not only labor, such as burden-bearing, but trading was to cease on the Shabbat. And when Nehemiah, uh, to prevent marketing on this day, ordered the closing of the gates in Nehemiah 10.31. By holy assembly, the doubling of the daily offering by two lambs of the first year with the corresponding meat and drink offerings and the providing of the new bread of the presence in the holy place. These were things associated with honoring and keeping the Shabbat. So thus the Sabbath was to Israel a day of gladness, which it is to us. I can see Gary's music playing. We're just so joyous. It's a delight, the holy day honorable to Yahuwah. From such passages it will appear that the essence of Shabbat observance is placed in the most unconditional and all-embracing self-denial. I could do that any other day. This day is His. I can do that six days a week, but this day is to Yahuwah. And I want to gather with my brothers and sisters who also feel and think the same way. It's the most unconditional dedication to Him. The object of this cessation from labor and coming together in a holy assembly was to give man an opportunity to engage in such mental and spiritual exercises as would tend to the quickening of the soul and spirit and the strengthening of spiritual life. And I can tell you all are getting strengthened just in your exuberant dance. Yeah, you, Gwen, I hear it. In this higher sense, it is evident that our master meant what the Sabbath was made for man, made for us, to strengthen us, to come together, study, to, to get energized, to get recharged. I mean, the world out there beats people up. The world out there is harsh. We're going to get into that in a minute, how the world is after a seed. You, yes. Well, I was in Israel, and on the Sabbath, they don't allow the planes to fly. They don't allow motorized traffic. They don't have any restaurants open. But they live amongst the Arabs, and the Arab section does what it wants, when it wants. Sure. But the J Jewish section, I mean, they're not even 100% no. Torah following, no. but they shut down the whole everything. They yeah. shut down everything. And I was trying to think about, I used to go around 19th Avenue and uh, where that mountain is, and I would see the Jewish people walking. Now, they all lived uh, in an area. They didn't, I don't think it was allowed to drive, but they all walked to the synagogue. I would see them on the streets. Yep. So I don't know what their customs are for the Sabbath in this day and age, but I learned from you, like kindling a fire. Is that not... Well, Done. and so we've, we've taken some, obviously, what does Yeshua say? Are the priests violating the Shabbat, every Shabbat? They don't are. cook or... They're working. They're, they're uh, burning offerings because there's, there's three offerings. The priests are be, working. Yeah. yeah. So there's three offerings. And so there's, there's th things that, and I, I can talk to you about that in person, but there's something we've understood and come, come to the understanding about this 
kindling a fire uh, because people have got to eat, right? I mean, people had to eat. People had to do things. So there's things to learn about that. Uh, do you have your hand up? Okay. A hand over here. I think part of the difference, you know, with them doing the fire and the strange fire, it's it's how they did it because it was unauthorized before the Lord. That's right. And they were in a place of authority and a place of of a higher holiness than the rest of the people. And that's why God had to make an example out of them yep. because he had to show them what was clean cannot be made unclean. You think it worked? Yeah. <laughs> you think the example made the other... Uh, high, the other priests not do that again? Yeah, that's quite an example. Very, very good example. Okay, it's a day of trusting Elohim, basic is what we're getting at. I'm going to jump back just for a second to Numbers 15.22. Do not carry any burdens. The Syriac word for burdens is to transport or quarry. Transport or quarry in the Syriac. Okay. Our New Testament portion is 1 John 2, 3, and it says, By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now this guy's breaking the Shabbat. He's gathering sticks. Obviously, he's changing the commands. God wants us to keep the commands. And yes, this is after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, now notice first we say commandments, now he's saying keep the word, but who's the word? In him the love of God has truly been perfected. I wonder if this is why when the man said, how, how can I obtain eternal life? And Yeshua tells him, just keep the commandments, because if you keep the commandments, the love of my Father has truly been perfected in you. Hmm. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The old saying, what, what, did, what did Yeshua do? People would just take that literally. What did he do? Well, he kept the Shabbat. He's in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. He keeps the seventh day Shabbat. He keeps the feast. He's wearing seat. Uh, everything that his father does, he does. Two seven says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old one, which you've had from just two weeks ago, just when Yeshua came. No, from the beginning, the old commandment is the word, the memra, which you have heard from the beginning. God doesn't change. He's the same word that He was back then, the same word that He was when He was walking on earth, and the same word that He is to us today. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes through hating his brother. So I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of Elohim abides in you and you have overcome the evil one through what? The word. The word. I like this because, you know, Yeshua uses this little children thing and you see that the same little children phrase is being used to the adults. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. This is why he said, I'm not come for the righteous. Yeshua was talking to the Jews. I didn't come for the righteous because they're born in me. They're doing righteousness. They're born in me. I came for the sinner. Hmm. Now we're going to jump back to the Torah portion for a reason. Again, there's three different words for bread here. So it says, Then Yahweh spoke with Moses, Moses, 
in Numbers 15, 17 through 21. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, there's the word children again, when you enter the land which I am bringing you, and it shall come about when you eat from the bread of the land that you shall set aside an offering to Yahuwah of the first of your dough, a loaf. We've got bread, dough, and loaf. Now, from my English mindset, I'm thinking it's all the same thing. But how many of you would know that there's three different Hebrew words here? The first one, bread, is lechem, that we say when we raise up the bread and say the blessing. Food, grain, bread. The second one, dough, is the word arisa, and it means a coarse meal. Now, it could be from, obviously, some kind of bread, but it's meaning something different in the Hebrew mind, a coarse meal. But the one I really like is this loaf that we're going to touch on on the next slide. This word loaf means a cake, challah, which is what this is, challah. You know what's interesting? It says, if it's pierced. Hmm. It seems like there was a bread of life that was pierced. Hmm. The bread of the land, according to the sages, this applies to the five species, wheat, barley, spelt, oats, and rye, from which bread is made. I want you guys to notice something here. Notice the threshing floor. So baking, the meaning of arisa is uncertain. The sages say, if a minimum of one omer of flour is used, a professional baker must set aside one forty-eighth aside while someone baking for home use, use owes twice the amount. In other words, they've got a, a lump of dough, they're going to take a piece out and set it aside. How many of you have heard of that? How many of you know that that's taking out a portion out of the bread? It says here, you shall set aside an offering before you of the first of your dough. And you shall, you shall set aside as an offering just as you did it on the threshing floor. Of the first of your dough, you shall give an offering throughout your generations. Which part of his word applies, which part doesn't? Mm-hmm. Hope I'm causing your gears to turn in your head. So let's look at threshing floor, because this is where I want to go. Just as you set aside from the threshing floor. I want to read to you Isaiah 21.10. O my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from Yahuwah Zevaot, the God of Israel, I make known to you, my threshed people. Second Samuel 24.18 says this, So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar, to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Now we have a threshing floor connected to the altar. Where do you think this was? This is in the city of David. This is where the temple is built. The threshing floor, where the temple is built, where the altar is at, this is the threshing floor. But there's another threshing floor, the Mount of Olives, that he also purchased. Hmm. Mount of Olives, threshing floor, the pierced one, who is the bread of life, was on that threshing floor. Hmm. What loaf is, it's a cake, challah, pierced. And that pierced bread of life was on the threshing floor at an altar where they would sacrifice and burn the red heifer. We're going to get somewhere. Hang with me. The word for threshing floor is gorem, and it means a barn. A barn. A threshing place. It signifies the place where grain was threshed from the stalk and the chaff. 
We're going to get to those words too here in a minute. And when I saw this barn and the threshing floor, I couldn't help but remember what was said in Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork, which is what happens at the threshing floor, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the, the gorin. Back to Jerusalem. Where's the wheat going? It's going to the barn. What's the barn? It's the threshing floor. And there's a purpose why it's got to go to the threshing floor. Now, it says here that in this verse that the wheat and the tares, well, we'll get to that. I'm going to be jumping ahead of myself. In verse 13, 12, 30, it says, Allow both to grow together, the wheat and the tares, until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, bind them into bundles, and burn them. But gather the wheat to my gorin, to my threshing floor, because when I gather the wheat, these are the people that are coming in, I'm going to sift them, and I'm going to winnow them, even though I've already taken care of the tares. Remember what happened in the wilderness? He brought the wheat out. But what did he do in the wilderness to the wheat? He threshed them. Korah rose up and revealed himself as one of the things that was chaffed that needed to be burned and blown away. God's looking for the real wheat that's going to fall and the chaff that's really not there, that's not all in with the heart, is going to... The threshing floor is a place where the wind blows. So when they throw the whole thing up, the light chaff blows in the wind and the heavy wheat falls down. Winnowing fork is what throws it up. I learned something that there's still another sifting after the tares are dealt with. But this sifting's taking place at Jerusalem at the place that his name is set apart and he called for his name to be proclaimed in. Oh, we're really not going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not the place. I'm going to choose my own place to go. I'm going to say I'm going to go here. Or I'm going to say it's here in, in the Mesa. Or it's in... I won't say some other words. It's up above. <laughs> Gary knows where I was going to go. But this says it's the barn, which is the threshing floor. And 2 Samuel 24, 18 says that threshing floor as at an altar, and it's in the city of David. Jeremiah 51.33 says, For thus says Yahweh Zebaot, the Elohim of Israel, the daughter of Babel is like a threshing floor at the time it is trodden. Yet a little while at the time of her harvest it shall come. We can find an explanation in the fact that Nineveh at times was called Old Babylon in Assyrian sources. A tale of two cities, Nineveh and Babylon. So I want to examine the threshing floor a little bit more. Because Babylon here is associated with the count of Jerusalem's fall. Jerusalem's going to be sifted. Jerusalem's going to be threshed. And he's using the nation of Babylon to winnow her and bring judgment. So, in 2 Kings 6.27, the threshing floor is called the barn floor. And in 2 Kings 6.25-29, Israel suffered severely from a famine. Bear with me. I want to read you 2 Kings 6.26. Now it happened that the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, and a woman cried out before him, saying, Save me, O my lord the king. Then he said, Will not Yahweh save you? From where can I save you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? We're in a famine. And he's asking her, Where do you want your salvation to come from? The wine or the threshing floor? 
The threshing floor is where the bounty and the harvest comes. This is where the harvest comes. This is where the bounty comes. This is where the wheat gets, the, the, they get sifted. But it's also the place of the blessing. It's the place of the, the temple mount. This is the place where the blessing of God, where God's name is proclaimed and pronounced. This is where uh, David sets up the altar. He builds, the, uh, Solomon builds the temple. This is the blessing. This is the future picturesque uh, place of the Israel coming, the remnant coming. Where does it say we're all going to go? Mount Zion. That's where this is at. So it would be like telling the person that's in jail, and he's an alcoholic, and he says, do you want the dime or do you want the bottle? Do you want the dime to be call someone to get you out? Or do you want the bottle and you're going to stay in? He's asking her, where do you want to be saved from? The wine or do you want to be saved from the threshing floor? In the famine. The bread of life is where I want to be saved from. The threshing floor is where the Messiah died, that we would have life everlasting. The threshing floors where he gave up his life, that we would have death removed from our lives, that we would no longer have death weighing over us. The threshing floor is the source and the place of the salvation of the people. She should have known that. For example, 2 Kings 4 describes four miracles that Elisha performs in our passage of 2 Kings. The common theme connecting these four episodes is that of hope out of hopelessness. Your hope should have been on the threshing floor. Shouldn't be on the wine vat. I bet there would have been a lot of guys that say, I'll take the wine vat. Not interested in the food. Give me the wine. Especially for the downtrodden, the poor who came to Elisha for help. In 2 Kings 5, Naaman the Gentile is healed, demonstrating that even Gentile individuals can be delivered if they turn from following pagan gods and follow the specific directions of God's true prophet. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha demonstrates that God also has the power to defeat the enemy armies that attack Israel, underscoring the fact that if the kings of Israel turn to God and listen to God's prophet, the nation itself can be delivered. The salvation comes from the threshing floor. However, in spite of clear miraculous evidence provided by Elisha, the kings and the nation continue to defy God follow pagan gods, and thus bring on themselves God's judgment. So a prominent theme in the political legends is Elisha's ability to save the nation when the king has failed. In the legend of the army and siege of Samaria, 2 Kings 6, which caused a devastating famine, the king's helplessness was underscored when a woman comes who has eaten her own kid, scarfed up her own child, and wanted him to pass judgment on her friend who was refusing to hand over her child according to their agreement. We made a pact during this famine that I'll give my kid and we'll just eat my kid tonight, but we, we made an agreement that tomorrow we'll, we'll, we'll kill her kid and we'll eat her kid, and she's not honoring the agreement. Judge her. Where are they looking to for the salvation and the help? Where's the hope focused on? Their own strength and their own power? Or should it be on the threshing floor where salvation came? You think, Mark, you're stretching it on the threshing floor. Think of this. God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son. I want you to take him to this place. Where do you think that place was? The threshing floor. And he said, God will provide the ram at the threshing floor. At the threshing floor. You see, your ram was provided at the threshing floor. Our hope should be on the one who provides from the threshing floor. All of this grain that's being sifted in the days of the kings, who do you think provided the grain? Was it them? No, the grain couldn't come unless God brought the rain. The grain was the evidence of God's blessing on the nation. This threshing floor was an example and a, a hope that God had brought providence, God had brought blessing to the nation because they had obeyed Him and He brought the rain that brought the grain that now brought up a huge heap of wheat and grain at the threshing floor. It's a place of hope 
It's the place that you should be putting this trust in God and His provisions. In desperation, the king goes to Elisha, knowing that the famine was from Yahuwah. Elisha calmly prophesied that there would be food in abundance the very next day, and that the doubting aid would suffer retribution because of the disbelief. Events happened exactly as Elisha foretold. Yahuwah caused the Arameans to hear a huge army, prompting them to abandon their camp. And four Sumerian lepers who had nothing to lose deserted to the enemy. Having enjoyed the abundance of the abandoned camp, they shared the good news. And after confirming the report, the Sumerians stampeded for the food, trampling the doubting aid to death. The legend affirms that the word saves when the king cannot, that belief in him, the Most High, is essential to the nation's welfare. Huge. Where is your hope? Where is your deliverance? Faith in the word and then obeying it. Would you stand with me? I want you to catch this. So please listen. The threshing floor when full was at once the symbol of plenty and wealth. The target of raiders. The raiders know where the abundance is coming, so they're running to the place of the threshing floor because this is where we can steal. This is where all the stuff is. This is, a, this is all the wealth from the man's whole land has come to the threshing floor. We can go and get it. It was vulnerable to attack because it had to be open to breezes which facilitated the winnowing of the grain. The threshing place of Arunah, which David bought and where Solomon later built a temple, was such a place. If near the town, the Goran was a communal thing and therefore near the gate. Ruth finds Boaz on the threshing floor. Her hope of being able to be restored and, and be taken care of was found at the threshing floor. Presumably guarding the newly harvested sheaves or threshed grain. The blessing of God is symbolized by the full threshing floor. From it was taken the heave offering to Yahuwah and the tithe of the increase over what was planted. The sheaves were spread out on the hard surface and either trampled by animals or by a sledge or roller machine to separate the kernels from the stalks the whole being turned over a sufficient number of times to effect the separation. After the tares have already been separated, there's a separating going on here at the threshing floor. A second sifting, you might say. But it's happening at Jerusalem. Yahushua will surely use a fan which is in his hand and will divide the precious from the vile. Once the wheat is brought to the barn, something else must take place. The heap on the barn floor is not clean provender, and hence the winnowing process must be performed. In the sieve, true weight alone has power. Husks and chaff being devoid of substance must fly before the wind, and only solid corn will remain at the harvest. Only true corn, true wheat, wheat that had a heart to want to serve, a heart all in, not half-heartedly, the heart all in. The, the half-hearted is gone with the wind. The movie about that, by the way. God wants all in. The, the, the tares, they're not even in it. They're gone right off the bat, burned. But the so-called wheat has got to have a sifting. We're going to find out, like Korah, who was a wheat, found out he was chaff and got burned and blown away. Father, we thank you for this word today to remind us that our hope and our trust is in the pierced loaf, the pierced bread that was laid upon the threshing floor of the Mount of Olives, who died that we'd have life everlasting. Our hope is in the one who provides the abundance. Our hope and our trust is in the one who provides even in famine, even in 
uh, dire straits of the enemy attacking. Our hope and our trust is in the one who saves, the one who delivers, the one who comes to the aid of the people who are trusting in him. We thank you, Father, that the words today have given us hope, given us reaffirmation of what you have promised and said, that our hope and our trust is in you, the one who brings the bounty, the one who supplies, and it's at the threshing floor. We glorify you and praise you in Master Hushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say, Shabbat Shalom! Shabbat Thank you everybody online for joining us. Thank you all there. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.